2: Announced that it would open a new quote neighborhood hub shop. In other words, this is going to be a store that's smaller and has no merchandise. And they're going to open this on October 3rd in West Hollywood, California. It did not go over well with investors. The shares fell about 3% on the news. And here to talk about this whole concept of window shopping with no merchandise that could be potentially the new front of retail, is Poonam Goyal. Uh, she is our own analyst that covers senior, uh, she's our own retail uh, analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and she joins us now. Poonam, you know, I actually thought this was not a terrible idea. It kind of moves to the whole experience kind of uh, focus that a lot of retailers are looking to do. What's the problem here? What was inve- what were investors responding so viscerally to?
3: You know, I don't know if the response yesterday was to this directly or maybe something else, but I agree with you, and I think it's actually a neat concept. It's one that more retailers should start thinking about how to drive people in their stores and how to shrink their stores. I mean, a three thousand square foot store versus their typical one hundred and forty thousand square foot store—that's uh, you know a big difference. And these three thousand square foot stores can go anywhere.
2: Well, and Poonam, can you give us a sense of what these stores might look like, what the experience would be walking in for a customer?
3: Sure. So, you know, you walk into these
2: stores, you
3: get a refreshment, whether it's beer, wine, coffee, whatever it is, you sit, a personal stylist greets you, there's eight big dressing rooms, they um, talk to you, they understand what you like, and then they have you try on a few things. And whatever you like, you can either come back and pick it up later or it can be shipped directly to you. So they'll have merchandise there, but that merchandise is not for sale immediately. You walk out bagless.
1: I'm just trying to wrap my head around this, Poonam, and, and I understand, you know, uh, Lisa thinks it's not a terrible idea. That's a great endorsement. Um, but, uh, you know, drinking wine, personal tailors, how is all this scalable? How do you do this with a company that's a $15 billion in sales?
3: You do it because you can have so many of these stores. So Nordstrom is coming to New York City in 2019 with a full price store. A flagship store. A flagship store. So why can't, and this is really, you know, me thinking very out there, why can't they add a 3,000-square-foot store in Soho and use the flagship store to fill that demand? They have 122 full-line stores. They can go into major shopping destinations and add these smaller
2: stores and use their hubs to fill the demand. Oh, totally. I, I actually, I totally see this, Pim, because if you think about it, I enjoy a glass of wine. I want to talk about, you know, what the latest trends are and try things on and make sure things fit all right before you order it online. And, uh, you know, not only that, but Poonam, is there any discussion about uh, creating other aspects of the experience? I mean, I know that, like, for example, the M&M store in Times Square had a very kind of playful uh, environment or the old F.A.O. Schwartz with the um, the clock and the and yeah, how the... did
1: that do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the F A O, and just hold on well, a second. But that's the,
2: okay. Go ahead.
1: Well, no, I was going to say, you know, to go back to your point about, you know, oh, okay, so that Nordstrom opens the flagship store in New York, and so they're going to do a, a smaller square foot, maybe a 3,000 square foot store in in Soho. Well, the reason they're not going to make any money there is because it costs four point three million dollars a year for a five thousand square foot storefront in Soho. It's expensive everywhere you want to go.
3: It is expensive, but just think about the traffic that they get into those stores and the sales they can get out of that 3,000-square-foot box. I mean, look, I don't know exactly what these stores are going to look like, but I would be more than happy to go in for a petty mani and um, look for some clothes while I'm doing that and try them on and then walk out and have it sent to my home and walk out without a bag because you don't want to carry a bag everywhere you go anymore
2: for all the men out there a mani pedi is a manicure a pedicure and i agree with you but i also think that there has to do uh, there 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 has to be an advertising element of this as well right i mean if you think about it the 4.3 million dollars that it costs to have that space if they have incredible foot traffic if they have an experience that gets the word, at, the word out that seems to be a destination for people i mean that's that's advertising that's worth it for them right yeah, not every 3,000-square-foot store will cost them that much money. I mean, there are other areas,
3: densely populated areas, that they could go into with these smaller footprints that maybe don't cost them that much money.
1: All right. So let let uh, all kidding aside, though, um, how many do they intend to uh, – do you have any idea how many of, the, of these new kinds of formats do they intend to open? And what precludes the competition from opening another small 3,000-square-foot space right next door?
3: So, so far, one. Um, no announcements of anything further than that. There may be one in Toronto, but um, it, it's just, you know, they haven't announced anything further than that. I think they're going to test and try, see how it goes, and then we'll hear more. As far as competition, why not? I mean, why isn't everyone thinking of something similar or different? We saw Coles just, uh, I think, what was it, a week ago, announced that Amazon's coming in 10 of their stores to showcase, test, and try Amazon branded goods. So people are thinking, retailers are thinking outside the box. They're trying to find ways to drive traffic and use the box more productively.
2: Well, I think that it's fascinating, and I imagine that they'll also have people who help uh, style different outfits and looks for people. So there'll be more of that kind of tailor experience as well, right?
3: Yeah, and then and then you get a fitted to you. They have a tailoring service on site. I, I mean, that's just you know one stop shop if you're a Nordstrom shopper or are a Nordstrom potential shopper that, you know, would be interested in clothes from them or shoes.
2: Poonam Goyal, thank you so much for joining us. Poonam Goyal is Senior Retail Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, talking about this new window shopping, no merchandise store concept. And uh, it's interesting, nonetheless. It's interesting to see retailers think outside the box and try to uh, come up with new experiences in a time when people really do order so much online. Mark Yusko has had some harsh words for certain ETFs. He called One Slice of the Funds one of the worst things ever created. Now he's starting his own ETF. Mark Yusko joins us now. Mark Yusko is Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer of Morgan Creek Capital Management, which oversees almost $3 billion in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Uh, Mark, so what convinced you to plow into this territory that you've had such criticism for, uh, about in the past few years?
4: Well, Lisa, you know, I think it's important to to note that, that I've actually never been a critic of ETFs as a structure. Yeah, you know, I think I think the ETF structure is is quite a good one. What I was critical of is is certain strategies, and, and the one that I did call, you know, maybe the worst invention perpetuated against uh, investors in a long time was this idea of low volatility, uh, where you buy a stock only based on the volatility of its price. No you know, regard to fundamentals, no regard to how the company performs, it seems like a, a really bad idea to buy something no matter what the price is and what, what the value is. So the, the structure of ETFs is, is a really good one. And I think the biggest reason for us to, to kind of cross over is, you know, we've been involved in the alternatives world for a very long time. And that basically meant that the SEC said, you know, if you weren't wealthy, you couldn't have access. Uh, because of all the restrictions against accredited investors and qualified purchasers, so this is a way to bring our styles and strategies that we think are are really good ways to to manage capital, honed in our endowment uh, experience, uh, into the world of, of the average investor.
1: So, Mark, will this uh, exchange traded fund will it be passive or active?
4: It'll be active, and I think that's a really important point. You know, although I I, I get kind of buggy on this on this word, too, Pam, and that the the word passive is kind of a misnomer in that these things aren't passive, right? You know, most of the stocks in the S&P, S&P 500 weren't there 30 years ago. There's been, I think, 85% turnover. It's just slow, active, and they're really momentum-based strategies because of the capitalization weighting in most of these index funds. So I don't really like the term passive, but you know, passive is indexing and, and that, all the other things. This will definitely be active in the sense that it's going to take our best ideas that we come up with once a year in uh, our, our primary themes, and then trade within the year around those those best ideas and, and try to deliver. You know, we think alpha because to us, alpha is smart. Yeah, you know, there's this whole thing called smart beta beta actually is dumb, not meaning unintelligent, but it's rule-based. Alpha is where the smart part of asset management is.
2: So, Mark, you set the best ideas once a year, correct?
4: Yes, those are the big themes. So kind of 10 big themes that we think have you know, about a 50-50 chance of happening, but if they do happen, they'll present up, you know, big upside return opportunities. You know, this year, a good example would have been short the dollar. Right. Everybody thought the dollar was going up this year. In fact, 85% of those surveyed on Bloomberg and other places thought the dollar was going up. So if you were short the dollar this year, you've made a lot of money. And if you were long, the renminbi, which was the opposite of what most people were doing last year.
2: So, Mark, currently, what's one of your uh, best ideas? So,
4: you know, well, short the dollar is still, you know, one of our our top 10 ideas. Uh, We also like the idea that that interest rates are going to continue to go down not up. Uh, you know, everybody thought interest rates were going to rally really hard after the Trump victory, and, and they did for a few weeks. And they started the year at 265, and now we're down at 216, and, and that's a surprise to everybody. Uh, but our probably our biggest one is this wealth transfer from the developing world i uh, sorry, from the developed world to the developing world. And we think emerging markets are, are going to continue to be the place to be. They're going to have a decade of dominance for the next 10 years. And while we think the U.S. market's going to struggle to make any return, um, basically be flat for a decade, just like from 2000 to 2010, we think emerging markets could, could compound in the high single digits to even low double digits.
1: Hey, Mark, what happens if one of these ideas goes bust?
4: Well, you know, they will, right? I mean, we're not going to get them all right. Uh, and that's why it's going to be an actively managed ETF. It's a great question. Um, so that, you know, we, we think one of the strengths of of the endowment model, you know, we've lived our, our whole careers, is, is the risk management. Focus on risk management, focus on protection of capital first, growth of capital second. You know, if you take care of the losses, the gains take care of themselves, uh, the old do you saying, have a
1: stop loss on each of the positions I mean do you say to yourself all right if this is it, if this goes down more than seven percent in the next six months I'm out of here
4: uh, again really important question we don't we don't like uh, those rules-based stop losses because what, what we think that does is is it it tends to what people do is they they buy high and they sell low. We rather try to only buy things when there's a margin of safety, so that some decline in price is actually okay and actually gives you an opportunity to buy more of something as long as you're below fair value. So you know if it turns out that you you know made a miscalculation on fair value or you you know just wrong or the trend changes, you know then you've just got to step to the side and that that's really more of a judgment call and that's where I think. The difference between active management and passive management really comes to bear is, is the whole concept of judgment. All right. Passive has no judgment. It's not allowed to have judgment. It has to buy whatever it, you know, the rule says it's going to buy, no matter what the price, no matter what the value. Well, we're going to and- see what
1: happens, right? We're going to see where your ETF is going to come out, and we'll uh, we'll check in with you to see whether this new uh, sort of actively managed ETF uh, will uh, grow to fruition, as you described. Thanks very much. Mark Yusko, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer, Morgan Creek Capital Management... to bring in john butler to learn more about the apple launch Uh, john in your world is this you know is this like christmas thanksgiving and i don't know new year's all rolled into one well it's
5: a big christmas this year Pim, because we get an extra iphone under the tree um apple for the first time in a long time is coming out with a product line extension and it's a perfect year to do it because it is the 10th anniversary of the iphone uh, the latest rumor, and there have been a lot of rumors about what it's going to be called, but apparently it's it's going to be called the iPhone 10, and um, it's at the very high end of the market. So a lot of people are talking about the high price, the thousand dollar plus price point. But I think I think it comes with a pretty significant redesign. They're taking the home button off. It's an OLED screen, so which are beautiful screens, by the way, Samsung uses OLED, and you get blacker blacks and whiter whites. Um, And it's going to be a large screen, larger than the uh, iPhone 7 Plus by about 0.3 inches. So the screen sizes are getting up there, and I think Apple is positioning it to... Compete with Samsung's new uh, Note 8. Yeah, which has actually
2: had a lot of demand for that. So uh, it seems like they have some stiff competition. It does,
5: and it's priced at $950. So it's at a similar price point. It's
2: it's discounted, basically. But, you know, John, I'm sorry. I personally have this visceral reaction to the frenzy that Apple is able to whip everyone up into. Can any other company create such a glut of just... Natural advertising, just everyone talking, Apple phone, Apple phone, Apple phone, all the time. I mean, why is there such an excitement over this?
5: i The roots are in Steve Jobs. Like, Steve Jobs, you know, with the initial iPhone announcement 10 years ago, that was really something. I mean, it was a brand-new device. He had basically taken what was up to that point a consumer electronics device and turned it into this appealing accessory. Well... And in the years that followed, of course, Jobs did a great uh, – did a tremendous job, no pun intended, <laughs> <I was laughs> well, but, really but, making but, an event of it. Well, do you and think so,
2: that this new iPhone will elevate the product to a new level so that it can even be considered a somewhat new innovation, right? Because that's that's been one challenge for Apple is that they really haven't come up with a new
0: hit.
5: They have not come up with a new hit. What they're looking to do, Lisa, is – broaden the category a little bit. So they're going to the ultra high end. They're a premium phone player, but they've never had a true match for the Note, Samsung Note 8 now. Um, and so I sort of view this as an important event because you're getting in a typical refresh, by the way, you get two new phones. We're now getting three, including this high end phone, so I think it's a big deal. And I think all the excitement is reflective of the power of the Apple brand. They really do have a, a great global brand.
1: Yeah, they and, also and do... they know two, how to leverage it. I was going to say, they also do $223 billion in sales a year. So they do. So anything that a company of that size does, you're going to yeah. want to pay attention to.
5: So the challenge now for Apple is they need to go from hardware innovations to compel people to upgrade to more software. And so what I'm looking for in today's event... Is what are we getting in the way of new content, new services, um, adjacent product markets? I hear we're getting a new watch that is going to be completely free of the iPhone. Which yeah, I this one will tell time too. Terrific! It may tell time. Yeah. that's the rumor. We'll see it one. I mean, John, I mean, I understand this whole you know
1: ecosystem with Apple and so on. But I I thought that the challenge that Apple really has—never mind the one thousand dollar price tag—but is getting people in China to buy their products. It's getting people
5: in China, which has matured, and now it's getting people India, in right? India, which I think is a long shot. Uh, we did a report taking a close look at that market. The monster portion of that market is at the low end price below $250. I think Apple doesn't stand a chance personally. But.
2: You know, it's interesting that you focus on content. I wonder how much of this is also geared at creating content customer data. There's been a lot of talk about one uh, big benefit that Google and Facebook have over Apple in the long term is that they have amazing uh, access to all of the customer uh, data. Amazon also. Where's Apple in this?
5: Nowhere yet, but that's where the content comes in, right? Because if you're producing original programming or even if you're not producing your own programming, you can benefit from the ad dollars and targeted ad dollars at that based on what you know about your user base. So when you heard Verizon originally give the hard sell on leveraging content at AOL and Yahoo, they were talking about leveraging what they know about their wireless customers. AT&T is probably going to do the same thing, and Apple is in a great position to do the same. So again, I'm looking for new a new maybe streaming video service coming this afternoon. Um, They made some big hires out of Sony, so they have a great content team. Where's it going now? That's the big question.
1: Just to follow up on what you said about AT&T and Verizon, the chief executive of AT&T, Randall Stevenson, today saying, expect the Time Warner deal to close by the end of the year. And, oh, yes, if you're interested in HBO, it'll be free to all wireless customers that have an unlimited plan. So there that's, you go. That's content an answer free. to
5: T-Mobile yeah. coming out the other day, giving free Netflix to people. And so not to go off on a tangent, but with the telcos... Oh, but
1: that's the same kind of thing you're it, talking it, about with with Apple. Yeah, it's, it's, okay, it's, you got the device, you're going to need the, the the content.
5: Yeah, for the telcos, they're dealing with the same market maturity and it's led to pricing pressure and wireless. How low can you go in price before you hurt yourself... And what do you do instead? You add value to that commoditized service, and they're doing it with content. And so AT&T is merely responding to what T-Mobile did by giving Netflix away for free for T-Mobile One subs on family plans.
2: How far away are we from peak content?
5: I don't cover content, so that's a tough call, but it's something I'm watching. It's getting to be an awfully crowded market, but... It's interesting to see where content is going. It's moved from long form, sit in front of the TV in your living room and watch it for an hour, to short form, watching it on a smartphone. So in that sense, the ball is moving into Apple's court, not away from it.
2: Yeah, we're all ADD now. John Butler, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Always a pleasure to speak with you. John Butler is Senior Telecom Services and Equipment Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, talking all things Apple. Apple. Apple, 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 the new iPhone.
1: Let's turn our attention now to infrastructure and utilities when it comes to the aftermath of Hurricane Irma. Joining us is Kit Conelage. He is our Senior Industrials and Utilities Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us here in our 1130 studio. Uh, Kit, thanks for coming in. Uh, Maybe just give us an update. I I was looking at some headlines that said that about 6.5 million customers are without electricity, but you brought your spreadsheet and you've got more detail. Well, the it looks to me like the latest from the grid operator in Florida
6: uh, indicates that we we're, we're down to about five and a half million outages now. So. Uh, th- th- they're obviously getting to the low-hanging fruit first, let's put it that way. So the the further south you were, the quicker the hurricane went through. So those guys are getting fixed now pretty readily. Presumably the Keys are going to have a hard time getting fixed, but there's not that many electric connections in the Keys. So um, as you fix up... Marco Island and up the West Coast, then FPL completes this, its work, but the, the North Central Florida... Florida Power is, and Light. Florida Power and Light is the one, and uh, North Central Florida where Duke Power, Florida, is uh, has still a, a, a higher percentage of their outages remaining.
2: Uh, Kate, can you give us a sense of the scope of what it will take to get power online? Are we talking about downed power lines that need to be uh, just put up and restrung or is there more substance? damage to the infrastructure
6: Uh, from what I've seen the utilities haven't really determined yet how much uh, real deep-seated problem they're gonna have with the infrastructure Uh, it uh, you know the initial things they're indicating seem to be maybe not as bad as could have been expected. So a lot of the power plants, which obviously are, uh, if you will, most important, uh, don't seem to have been affected. And then you have these things that you uh, you, you call the substations, which are like billion-dollar installations that connect high power lines to low power lines. They were raised and they shouldn't have been flooded. That was the purpose of all this work they did in the last 10 years. We'll see how well that turns out.
2: Well, and then, uh, Kit... Going forward, this is going to be expensive, and I'm just wondering what the financial condition of uh, Nextera's flor uh, Florida Power and Light, which you were talking about, Tampa Electric, Duke Energy, Florida, Southern Companies, Gulf Power, and Georgia Power. I mean, how how are they going to afford this?
6: Well, that's a, a very fair question. I I would say that for Next Era and Duke and and the Southern company subsidiaries, and Southern got hit in in Georgia Power as well, of course. Uh, those are all Companies in the range of 50 billion market cap. So uh, even uh, you know a, a, a bill in the billions for them, and even assuming they had trouble collecting it from the ratepayers, which in theory they're allowed to do, uh, there's no existential threat to those kind of companies. Um, Tampa Electric is has a smaller. Uh, company. So there may be something there. They're a subsidiary of Emera, which is a,
1: a Canadian company. Kit, uh, this is going to require, as you mentioned, a lot of work. It's going to require a lot of people. One estimate by uh, the chief executive of Southern Company, uh, Thomas Fanning, he said that they might need between 50 and 60,000 workers from all over the US and Canada in order to actually rebuild. The Florida infrastructure.
6: From from what I've seen the companies across the country uh, putting out in press releases, they're flocking in f- literally from all over the country and probably from Canada as well. Uh, it's, it's a good thing for the utilities from out of town to do uh, – Turn about is fair play if something happens to them. They, they want there, – there's a lot of uh, of cooperation in the utility industry for these kind of natural disasters. They're not direct competitors here. Once their power lines are down, then everybody wants to help. Plus, they get paid for it. So it's – it all adds up pretty well. But everybody knows in the industry that it's important to the local utility – to get the power back on. And if you wait more than a week, uh, people start grumbling. And it's not obviously always in your control, but they, they can empathize because they've all been through this, that if you have problems getting everything connected rapidly, uh, people are going to start to complain. And that's always bad for utility.
2: Kit Connolidge, thank you so much for joining us. Kit Connolidge is Senior Industrials and Utilities Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, if I can speak today, Uh, joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios here in New York. And while it wasn't as bad as we thought, Hurricane Irma did cause devastation in the Keys. And uh, the Pentagon is now saying that 10,000 people still uh, may need to be evacuated from that region.